So let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. We're going to actually finish a book today. But then we'll be going into 2 Thessalonians uh, next week, Lord willing. Um, I titled this morning's message, Paul's Final Exhortations. Last week, uh, we finished, if you want to say, the doctrinal portion of this first letter of Paul's. And he talked about the day of the Lord, a specific time frame, a specific period of time that really uh, covers a series of events. We read in verses 1 and 2, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord begins, I believe, with the rapture or the gathering together of all the true believers of all ages that are going to be caught up with those that who have fallen asleep in Christ, we're going to be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and, and we're going to be in eternity with Christ. Following that rapture, and still under this day of the Lord, there's going to be a tribulation period of seven years. We can read that about that in Daniel 9. Following that seven-year tribulation period, there's going to be a thousand-year millennial reign where Christ is going to establish His throne once again, sit on the throne of David in the new Jerusalem. And then after this thousand-year millennial reign, there's going to be, I believe, a new heaven and a new earth where God is going to make all things new. Wow. Looking forward to that day. We have eternity together, church. That's pretty exciting to think of. Never dying. Living forever in eternity with the One who saved us. The One who did all of this. Incredible. Paul finishes, though, this letter to the believers at Thessalonica with some practical words. Uh, These are words on how we should be living in relationship to God and relationship to one another. And I've always shared that. It always starts this way so that it could affect this way. And that's important always to keep in mind. If this is not right, this will never be right. And so we have to get that order correct. The church was an example, this church at Thessalonica, to all the other churches that were in the region of Macedonia and Achaia. But... It's also important to note that there's no perfect churches. Though they were a model church and and had many things that we could look at and, and, and desire to be like, Paul still needed to urge this church. He needed to exhort them, and he prayed for them often. One of Paul's favorite terms for believers is brethren, brothers. And keep in mind that whenever you see brother or brethren in the Bible, that includes you women. It doesn't uh, make a distinction between the sexes. It's you're a brother. But we could say you're a sister in Christ. But Paul loved that term uh, because it, it brought it home. Here we are as believers. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an important, I believe, way to look at our relationship with one another. We also think of ourselves as the family of God because we're all children of God and we're all part of this family of God universal over the whole world, those that are true believers. And then we are also part of this family here of Calvary Chapel Fellowship. We actually see that Paul uses this word brother or brethren 60 times in the New Testament. In First and Second Thessalonians, he uses it 28 times, and five of those times are in this last part of chapter 5 that we're covering today. Paul viewed the church as a family. 
He also, though, used the human body as a picture of the church. You are the body of Christ. Who is the head? He's the head. You're the body. And one of the things that Paul brings out in our text this morning, and it's a good question for us to answer, is what makes for a healthy, thriving church family? What are some of the things that are characteristic of a healthy church family? The first thing that I believe that Paul brings out is good leadership. You see, even within a home, if there's not good spiritual leadership within a home, it's probably not a very healthy environment in the way of marriage or in the way of parenting if there's not a spiritual head. I believe that God set this all up. It's within the church, but it's also within our homes. Leadership is important. And for those of us that are men, that have families here, we're called to be good leaders within our homes. Remember I shared that chapters 1 to 3 was Paul writing to the believers at Thessalonica, looking back and looking back at all that God had done in them and what God was doing through them. But when we came to chapter 4, it took a switch. Now here's Paul looking ahead. This is what Paul desired to see happen in them. And that's the way it is in the Christian walk, isn't it? We never sit still. We're never content with just, I'm all right, right where I'm at. You know what I mean? I, I think I've plateaued. I've, I'm at that place where I don't need to move forward. Anymore. We should always be striving to be more like Christ. He's our example. He's our ultimate model that we would want to be like. We find in this last section or this last portion of Paul's first letter, some final exhortations and instructions that are important for us to know. He's closing this letter with these words. It's like, how much can I get into this last chapter is what we're going to see even this morning. I read a quote, something that a pastor uh, by the name of Ray Stedman wrote. It it, It was actually the prelude to the chapter that we're going to read this morning And it was a a serious warning to the introduction of this next section. And and so I, I think that he said it so well, I'll just read you what he wrote. I heard a man say, the most important thing in learning to relate to others is personal honesty. Once you learn to fake that, he added, everything else is easy. Many people, unfortunately, seem to follow that philosophy. Perhaps one of the most discouraging aspects of modern-day living is not so much the morale collapse of leaders, such as we have seen many examples recently, but the low level of ethical behavior on the part of many Christians. I do not understand what has happened to the Christian community. Believers who go regularly to church and profess to believe the Bible often seem to go along with practices of the world around them with hardly any consciousness that what they are doing is unbiblical and really wrong. The lie without hesitation. They lie without hesitation. They evade paying their bills They cheat on their taxes. They ignore needy people. They fail to keep appointments. They freeload shamelessly. They lose their tempers. They grow critical and caustic. They desert their mates. If the Apostle Paul were here, he would be very concerned about this. To him, the mark of a true Christian faith is that it changes everything you do and say. It affects every area of your life. A Christian may no longer act as he did before he came to Christ. This is very clear in the letters of the Apostle. Every letter that he wrote ends with pointed practical applications to daily situations of the truth that he had set out. 
We start this morning in verse 12 with Paul's words. He says, and we urge you. Notice that it's not I urge you, but we urge you. Paul had his companions, Timothy and Silas, along with him. They were in agreement with what was being presented to the church there at Thessalonica from the report that Paul had gotten back from Timothy. We urge you, brethren, and notice he's bringing that word up again here, brethren. Brothers in Christ, I'm speaking to you as brothers in the Lord, and so I can speak this way to you. If this room is full of unbelievers, I couldn't be speaking about the things that I'm saying this morning and for the audience to be saying, that makes sense to me. It wouldn't, and they wouldn't apply it. But it should apply to us as believers. We urge you, brethren, he says, to recognize... Now, if you have the old King James Bible, it reads, we urge you, brethren, to know or to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. A healthy church, as I've said, is a church that recognizes that God has established leadership within the church, just like in a marriage. In churches, God has leadership, and leadership is important. I think that a good example of this is found in the book of Ephesians, where Paul was writing and he was talking about the roles and the giftings that have been given to the local church. Really, these giftings are given by God. God gives them to the church. If you want to look at that, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. I think this is important. Ephesians 4.11. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he's telling them that these roles and giftings to the church, to the local church, are gifts from God. But what roles and gifts did God give? Look at verse 11. It says that God himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Those are the gifts. Those are the callings. Those are the the roles that God has placed within the church. For what purpose did God give them? Look at your Bibles at verse 12. He says that it's for the equipping of the saints. You're a saint if you're a child of God. It's for the equipping of the saints. It's for the work of the ministry. It's for the edifying, or that word edifying is building up, of the body of Christ. It's why God gave these people in these positions within the church. To grow the church in the body of Christ. How long... Will this, will this equipping go on for? Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. That's how long it's going to go on for. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Think of that. How much work does God still need to do in you? Are you there yet? Is there more growth that needs to happen in your life? we got a long way to go, don't we? And God won't be done with you or me until the day He gives you your new body and you're at home with Him. And so that's how long it's going to go on for. For what purpose is this equipping? Verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's why he, he doesn't want us to be tossed. He wants us to know God has given pastors, teachers, evangelists. He's given these positions and these people within the church to equip the body. That we wouldn't be children tossed to and fro. 
with every wind of doctrine that's out there. We would know our word. We would know it well. We're not ones that could be tripped up very easily. How can that happen? It tells us in that verse 14, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speak the truth in love, Paul says, that we may grow up, and here it is, that we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head. And then he tells us who the head is, Christ. Christ is the head and you are the body. What is the desired result from all of this? Verse 16, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together. How is this done? Look what it says. By what every joint supplies. You're a joint. You're a joint in the body of Christ. According to the effective working by which every part, not some of the parts, but every part does its share. What is your part at Calvary Chapel Fellowship? What part are you contributing to the welfare of one another? It's not just my job. It's not just the job of a handful. It's the job and really a part of each one of us that every part does its share. Know your giftings. Put those giftings to use. Don't neglect the gift that God has given to you. And then it tells us it causes growth of the body. And it says, for the edifying of itself in love. That's why God has given leadership within the church. He's given giftings and roles within the body of Christ. Paul goes on in verse 13, speaking about these leaders. This is one of my favorite verses, by the way. And esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. It's not really my favorite verse, but it's a good verse. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. The meaning in context here is that as believers, we're to engage in an intellectual process. In other words, we're supposed to see the leaders, we're supposed to acknowledge the giftings that God has put upon them, and we're to highly esteem them in love for their work's sake, what, is, what God has called them to. That takes some thought process. It, say, it, it takes understanding why those things are in place. That This is a work of God. This is what God does and how He does it. Paul says, in essence, regard your leaders in a good light. Do it in love. That word love there is agape, unconditional, sacrificial love. Do it in love and do it for the work's sake. It's important that we see this church growing in leadership. A church that has no leadership that is growing or no multiplying of leaders within it is not a very healthy church. We need to be growing. And in a sense, many of us here are leaders in various capacities within the church. Verse 13 ends with these words. Be at peace among yourselves. Or live in peace with one another. Or we could put it this way. Join together or don't let things separate you. There we go. Don't let things separate you. Don't be separated or divided as the body of Christ. You see, living in peace is opposite of division and dissension. To be at peace with God and to be at peace with one another. It usually doesn't consist of division or dissension amongst one another. Paul knew that a healthy, thriving church family, this body of believers who is uh, seeking to minister in humility and love, would do it in various ways. 
We do that amongst one another with the giftings that God has given to us and just with the heart that He's given us of compassion and love towards one another. We're all different people here though, aren't we? We're all different. We all have different places in our walks. We're all walking at a a different pace. We're all different in our maturity. But we're all part of the body of Christ. We all have areas of weakness, don't we? And we all have some areas of strength that maybe others don't have. That's the body of Christ. And we're real people. They just have these various things. And some of us have, you know, just issues. And God's working in those issues. But we learn amongst to, to, to live peaceably amongst one another. You see, Paul was not surprised that there were those in the church who were weak. This, this didn't alarm him. He knew that that was the case. He knew that there were people in the church that struggled even with other people in the church. That there were struggles even in the midst. He knew that there was no such thing as a perfect family. We're the family of God. But it's not perfect because we're imperfect people. But it's important to note that being at peace with others requires that you make a conscious choice to do so. That that you don't let strife, you don't let division come between you and another brother and sister in Christ. In other words, it's saying to myself, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm, you know, my flesh wants to, but I'm not going to let that happen. I don't want strife in my own life. I don't want to see strife in our church. I don't want to see division in our church. And I'm not going to let it happen. And Lord, would you help me? And you see, it's, it's all how we approach it. It's our, it's our mindset. And when we live that way, and when we operate that way in the body of Christ, the result of that will be peace. There will be peace in our midst. There will be peace in your own heart. Peace with others. And that's a a great place to be in. I refuse in my own self to let myself get to that place. Because then I've got to strive within myself. I've got, to be, I've got to feel uneasy when I'm around so-and-so. I mean, all of those things that come into play. Be at peace. James tells us where this unrest comes from within the body of Christ. He says it comes where there's selfishness on the inside. And he says and that selfishness leads to strife on the outside. James 4.1 tells us this. Where do wars and fights come from among you? He's talking about wars and fightings within the body of Christ. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? In other words, selfishness. That's within sight of each of us. That wants its way. That doesn't like, you know, and, and... That's where it comes from. How we come up against that is we commit these things to the Lord. God, would you change my heart? Help me to live at peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage them, to lift them up, to see that there's differences between us. But we still dwell together. We still minister. We're still focused on what we're here for. I really think that probably the number one issue in every church when it comes to strife and dissension has to do with personal relationships. It's a big thing. Why? We've got a bunch of people that come together every week from all different walks of life. We're all different. It's okay to be okay with people being different. They don't all have to be like me. And I'm glad you're not. But don't make everybody want to be like you. 
Just enjoy them for who they are. Paul now closes this letter with 12 different exhortations. Notice I looked at the clock. That you should all live and grow by these things. In verse 12, Paul said, we urge you, brethren. And now in verse 14, he says, we exhort you, brethren. Look at this list, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn, or another word is admonish those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourself and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Paul's first exhortation in verse 14 is now we exhort you, brethren, or we could say, I urge you or I beg you, Christians, is what Paul is saying, that you would warn those who are unruly. He's putting it on them. He's not the one directly warning. He's saying to the believers there that you should warn those who are unruly. This word warn, translated admonish, is a command. Paul is commanding the believers there to do this. The unruly could also be translated the careless Christians. Uh, Those who are in a sense walking a fine line in their walks. They're being idle. They're being lazy. Uh, They're not occupying until the Lord's return. That's what he's admonishing them to do, to look out for the unruly. You see, admonishing these believers was different than teaching. I can get up here and teach the Word of God to you. And when I teach the Word of God, you're hearing just the pure truth of God's Word as I read it from His Word. When I admonish or when somebody is admonishing a believer or exhorting that believer or admonishing them, uh, it's usually connected with things that they are doing wrong. When you admonish somebody. When you rebuke somebody. To rebuke a person is a sharper word. And it usually is meant to express a stern disapproval. For Or it's really to reprimand somebody that should know what is right, but you're doing it all wrong. And many times there were called that a rebuke. Sometimes it's a gentle rebuke. Like the Lord when He told His disciples when they thought that the ship was going to, boat was going to sink. Oh, ye of little faith. It was really a gentle rebuke to them. Sometimes it's a harsh rebuke. It depends. I just bring those things out so that we know what we're talking about here between warning or admonishing people, teaching people, somebody that might rebuke. But with all of those things, we always are to look this way first. Before you go out and admonish and rebuke, and you know, we're not, I don't have the gift of rebuking. I don't even see that in Scripture. So don't ever say, I've got the gift of that. This is something that you do as the Lord leads. And he better be leading because you need to examine yourself first. But this word unruly is also translated disorderly. It, it, we actually get the word from, it's a military term, uh, that describes a soldier that was out of step or that was not keeping rank or being insubordinate. That's the kind of person... Paul is saying that they were saying, look out and admonish the unruly. It speaks of 
whatever is out of order. It, it, it came to mean even things that were disorderly or irregular or uh, living just the wrong kind of life, long, wrong kind of lifestyle. It's this unruly attitude in the body of Christ that Paul was concerned about. An unruly attitude many times is the problems that happen within the church. Unruly people sometimes bring about relational problems, arguments. Uh, There's church splits that happen. Being lazy, being idle. In a sense, being just putting yourself in the, the neutral gear. You know, you put the car in the neutral. God never calls us to become neutral. And just, just plug it in new. I'm just idling right now. That's all I'm doing. Paul says, admonish the unruly. Those that are out of step. It also appears that this first letter... And this first exhortation that we see here, or uh, that Paul is giving, didn't correct the problem. Uh, Because we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, many times it took Paul more than one letter to get people to kind of hear it, take it home, apply it. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul wrote again, he says, But we commend you, brethren, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. It's the same word. And not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. Not working at all, but our busybodies. You see what's, what's going on and how Paul had to get to the real issues of things. He spoke directly to real issues with real people, just like we have today. Nothing's new. And then in 4.11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. Wow, that's real direct. The second exhortation in verse 14 is comfort the faint-hearted. This is a work for all of us, by the way. Comfort the faint-hearted or comfort the feeble-minded in the old King James. Faint-hearted means literally a small-souled. S-O-U-L-E-D. A small-souled or the despondent. It's those who are feeling hopeless at times within the church. Those that are discouraged. Those that are dejected. And as a body of believers, we look out amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're called to comfort the faint-hearted. You know, when our eyes are on ourself and everything on me, we don't see anything outside of that. When my eyes are not on myself and I'm looking out amongst one another, God can use us in great ways. Because there are times that we come discouraged. There are times that we come despondent or feeling that hopelessness from circumstances in life. And that's what the body of Christ is about, encouragement. Comforting the faint-hearted. Isaiah 57.15 says, God will revive the spirit of the humble, revive the heart of the contrite ones. We need to be used of the Lord in this way, even in this body here looking out amongst your brothers and sisters, encouraging when they're going through trials, struggles, when they're really, you know, you know maybe, maybe you're privy to some of the things they're going through. And you're here to pray. You're here to encourage. It should be a safe environment for us here, not a critical environment, a safe environment. 
Remember Paul's words back in chapter 2, verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father with his own children. That was his heart. Like a father with his own children, just only wanting the best. Could we take on that same kind of mindset and heart towards our brothers and sisters? You know, just like a father with a child. And I care so much about how you're doing. I, I want to pray with you. I want to help you. I want whatever I can do to, to lessen your load. That's the way we should be. The third exhortation in verse 14, uphold the weak. Help the weak. Or literally, hold fast to the weak. Think of that. Those that are weak, those that are struggling in their walks with the Lord, holding fast to them. In other words, I'm not going to let you go. I see you wanting to go the way of the world. I see you wanting to go off on this path. And I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you fall. Uphold the weak, Paul says. You see, not all of us are that strong all the time. And we need to be used of the Lord to encourage one another, those that are weak in faith. faith. Typically, a Christian who is weak in faith and one who is struggling in their walk is one who struggles with the liberty that we have in Christ. You see, we're free in Christ. Not free to sin, but we have liberty in Christ Jesus. But many times, the weak in faith, they struggle with this liberty and they, they, they kind of play with it and give in to it. And yeah, you know, God will forgive. You know what I mean? But that's not how we should be. Paul in Romans 14.1 says, Receive one who is weak in faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. You see, there's, there's times where we feel like, you know what? You're not really understanding things completely. You don't really get it all. But I'm not going to beat you up on that. I'm not going to try and drive that point home because if that's what your conscience tells you, then I'm okay with that. You need to do before the Lord what you feel that your conscience is telling you before the Lord. If that means not eating meat, I won't do it either then. That's a brother and sister in Christ. Romans 15 verse 1 We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification, for even Christ did not please himself. You see, he came as a servant. He came and just yielded his whole self for you and me. And we're called to do the same for one another. We need to do it with great patience and we need to do it with reassuring love for that person. Number four is in verse 14. Be patient with all. In other words, don't give up on the weak, but be patient with them. Now, for those of us that are parents here, uh, we know that there's a whole lot of patience (laughs) that goes into raising our children. Uh, We need that patience daily as we raise our children, but we need that same patience within the church. We need that same patience with, with one another. You see, it's the same in the church as it is in your homes. Hopefully we're being patient with our spouse. Hopefully we're being patient with our our children, as we're seeing our relationship grow and struggle or whatever, help me to be patient. Help me to be patient with the raising of my children. Help me to be patient with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Very important. We're being exhorted in that, in this letter. Patience is a must. When you're in leadership in a church, 
I've learned that. I'm learning that. To be patient. Because I know that I can't do the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can work those things in your hearts. I can't do it. I have to be patient and let the Lord use me as well as He wants to use you. But I have to be patient. Because God is doing a work. And I know that when God starts a work, He finishes it. And I'm real comfortable with that. God, help me to have more patience with you. And that you would have patience with me. That's the life of a Christian. Number five is in verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. In other words, we should never pay back evil for evil. That's uncharacteristic of a believer. To want to repay evil for evil. I don't think any of us here like getting burned. We don't like getting burned in relationships. We don't like to think that, yeah, we're like this, but it's not what I thought. And many times we get, in our minds anyway, burned by people that we thought loved us. Maybe that we've invested our life into. It's one of the hardest things for a pastor. It's the hardest thing is to invest into people's lives and then to see them go off another way. And I'm not talking about leaving a church. I'm just saying go off another way. Sometimes it includes leaving the church. But when we've been wronged by others, we're called to leave it to God. God, I commit it to you. I trust you with this, Lord. Help me in this. Thinking more highly of others than yourself will help you in that. Thinking more highly of of others and and then having your eyes on self. It'll, It'll make it easier for you to work through those things. It all has to do with our attitude. It has to do with our mindset and our heart condition. That's what it's all about, is motives of heart. Paul gave us some words in Romans on this matter. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, Do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see how all that works? How it can work? within relationships, within the body of Christ. Not repaying evil for evil, but always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. That's our goal. That should be our goal. Number six is in verse 16. Paul says, rejoice always. The authorized King James says, Rejoice evermore. In Nehemiah 8.10, it tells us, The joy of the Lord is our strength. I think as Christians, we should have joy really coming forth out of our lives. Why? Because we have the fruit of the Spirit that lives within us. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. You can read the list. And one of those is joy. And being able to rejoice and have joy even in the midst of circumstances. 
It's the fruit of the Spirit. Rejoice always, believers, is what Paul is saying. When you serve God and you serve one another with joy, there's no struggles. It really eliminates a lot of struggle that can go on when there's joy in your serving one another. You're doing it because you genuinely care about the other people. And there's joy in doing it. And, and when you have that kind of hard attitude, and it just eliminates a lot of struggle. Number seven is in verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Now, that praying without ceasing can be convicting when you read those words like that. But it's not saying to us as believers that we're to pray nonstop. In other words, you get up in the morning and you just hit your knees and you're on your knees all day long praying. We have to work. We go about our business. But praying without ceasing is being in tune with God all the time. God, I want to be in tune with you as I go about my day, as I'm working, as I'm out amongst people, that I could be communicating with you even though I'm not saying anything with my mouth. Even though I'm not in my prayer closet, so to speak, or on my knees, but I'm actually communicating with you as you bring people to my mind, thinking about different things and just lifting up in prayer. That's how I believe Paul was able to say, I, I pray with you for you without ceasing because you're always on my mind. And when God brings you to my mind, I lift you up in prayer. We can, I believe, have a continual access. And we can have conversation with God all the time. It doesn't have to be at church. It doesn't have to be just at a meal time. You know, we don't want to be Christians to just pray when we eat. Or, you know what I mean, but that I would have this continual heart of communication with the Lord throughout my day, praising Him, thanking Him, lifting one another, you know, whatever it might be. Number 8, verse 18. In everything, give thanks. Does everybody's Bible read everything? (laughs) Yeah, okay, good. In everything, give thanks. Thankfulness, it's a part of our worship to God. How many of you during worship this morning thank God even in your worship that that word rolled off your lips or out of your heart to the Lord? Thank you, Lord. The the, the lyrics that I just read, it, it hit home in my heart. Thank you, Lord, for that. In everything, give thanks. It's it's part of our worship. It's It's being grateful. It's having this habitual attitude or this it's the action of a it's what Christians are you see non-believers can be thankful for things but our thankfulness has got a direction to it that thankfulness is directed up to the one that we're thankful for all of his provisions in everything give thanks Paul in Ephesians 5.18 he tells us Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, or be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Wow. That's the heart of a transformed person. That my mind is not consumed or being led around by a substance of alcohol, but it's being filled with the Spirit. And out of that filling of the Holy Spirit, psalms, hymns, spirituals, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, when's the last time you experienced that? Just driving down the road. Just on your way to work. Just in your heart, you've got this joy and this song in your heart. 
before the Lord. A thankfulness that is just easily rolling off your lips. And you might even have a lot of things going on in life. And you can still be that way. You see, a thankful heart is medicine for the one who is struggling. Have you ever done that? I Put it to the test. The next time you are just feeling like you're getting hammered, start thanking God. Find a list. Write it down or whatever. Just start thanking the Lord. Lord, I thank you. I, I, Lord, I don't like what's going on. But Lord, I'm going to thank you for who you are. I'm going to pray. You know, and you just start thanking the Lord. And then see if it won't change your perspective. See if everything won't kind of come into a balance. That God won't you know, minister to your heart. Just through you being thankful. For Paul in Romans 1, he says that unthankfulness is characteristic of an unbeliever. It's characteristic of somebody that doesn't know. And neither were they thankful, Paul wrote. It doesn't mean that a non-believer never is thankful for anything, but they weren't thankful towards God in anything, nor can they be. Nor would they want to be. But we should be people that that should be almost be like, that's at the top of the list of my vocabulary. Lord, I'm thankful for so many things. And, and, and in that, God ministers to you. And as a matter of fact, when people see that you're that way, you'll minister to them. They'll go, wow, they're thanking the Lord. Even I'd be pulling my hair out right now. I'd be going, how do they do that? They're thanking the Lord and they're thankful to the Lord. And I can't do that, but you can. Number nine, do not quench the spirit or do not strive or or, uh, stifle, excuse me, do not stifle or suppress or subdue the Holy Spirit's work in your life. That's what it means to quench the Spirit. You don't want to stifle or suppress what God's wanting to do in you. How would we do that? Well, have you ever sat on a Sunday morning or any other service or heard a Bible study? And you felt like you're just, you're zoned out, man. You're just just not even there. Everything that was just said, nothing really hit home. It It didn't really get to me at all. I didn't feel convicted one bit. I didn't, you know, I didn't get any encouraged from it either. But there's nothing going on. Do not quench the Spirit. It's a command. It could be paraphrased like this. Stop putting out the fire. Stop putting out the fire. God wants to ignite something in us. In our hearts. And we could be ones in our flesh that would want to... I'm I'm not hearing. I'm not there. I'm not, you know, taking it on board. Stop putting out the fire of the Holy Spirit that wants to speak something into you. We should be sitting there like on the edge of our seat going, what do you want to say to me, God? What do you want to change in me? How do you want me to be? What's the man or woman of God? What are you trying to work in me? Stop hindering and repressing the Holy Spirit is what Paul is saying. For in doing so, you are preventing him from exerting his full influence on your life. I asked you a while back, how many of you want more? A lot of hands went up. I want more of the Lord. If if you want that, then don't quench the Spirit. Let God have His way. In the book of Leviticus, an example of this fire Leviticus 6.12, we're told that the priest, that the fire was on the altar, 
And that it was to be kept burning all the time. They'd put new wood on in the morning. It shall not be put out, we're told. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the, of the peace offerings. That wood, that burning, that fire, keeping it stoked. That's the way we should be. The Spirit, and the word that we read here, is the Greek word pneuma. Pneuma means breath of air. Or a breath of air in motion. And and in a sense, Paul is saying, do not smother that breath of air. That, That Holy Spirit that's wanting to speak something into your heart. Don't obstruct that passage of air of the Holy Spirit wanting to speak to you. We can just we can do that just because we're of our pride. We can do that because we don't have an ear to hear. We can do that because I don't want to change. <laughs> we can do that for a whole lot of different reasons. But Paul says, do not quench the spirit. We hear the word of God taught each week. We read it and should read it every day. But how much are you taking in from it? That's the question. How much have you received today? Number 10, verse 20. Do not despise prophecies or let God by His Spirit speak to your hearts through His Word, we could say. And again, it really goes along with what I just said. But don't despise prophecies. It's despising prophecy is something that, in a sense, you're saying in your heart, it's worthless or it's no value to me. The teaching of God's Word. Do you look at it every time it's being taught as being something that is valuable to you to hear? We should hear the Word of God taught. We should read the Word of God ourselves. And do we look at those things as being God speaking through a person or God speaking to us via prophecy? Prophecy in the Old Testament was foretelling, speaking of things in the future. But prophecy could also be, and, and remember that before the whole council of the Word of God, which was not till 100 A.D., the people heard God speak forth the truth of God's Word. Do not despise prophecy or the hearing forth of the Word from God. Don't be afraid of what God wants to reveal to you through His Word. Have you ever felt that? Oh God, we're getting into that chapter. (laughs) You're not going there, are you? It's not one that I feel comfortable with. I know this one's going to hit home, and so you just start tuning out. Don't do that. Let God have His way. Number 11, and we're drawing close. I told you it was a long list. Verse 21, Test all things, or examine all things. Hold fast to what is good. To test or to prove everything that you hear. See, these things are all in relationship to the Word of God and taking it in. Test those things that you're hearing me say. Test those things that you hear on the radio or that you see on TV. Examine those things. All things. Hold fast to those things that are good. Grab on to those things. The things that are not right. Have you ever heard somebody teen go, that was good, and then you know, 90% of it was no good? There can be a little bit of good, and there can be some that are not good. So we're to test everything. Test all things, and then hold fast to those things that are good. Remember that we have the Spirit of truth that lives inside of you, that reveals and illuminates His Word to you, but you have the Word of God. 
and you look to the Word of God. And when things are being taught, is it in the Word of God? If it's not found in the Word of God, then no, no. You know, is it in God's Word? Yes. Okay. I've tested it. I've examined it. It's right. I see that. God's revealed that to me. And I hold fast to it. I'm not going to move away from it. Titus 1.9 Holding fast the faithful word is what he says. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Using the word of God. The faithful word it's referred to as. Number 12, last the last one, verse 22. Abstain from every form of evil or every kind of evil. Or we could put it this way, put distance between you and those things that are evil. Put distance between those things. You see, evil... By its very definition in this word, this word is associated with labor, with sorrow, with pain. Can you say amen, mothers? Evil is associated with labor, with sorrow, with pain. Evil is associated with lies, distortion of the truth, moral perversion. Abstain, Paul says, from every form of evil. Why would he be saying that to this model church at Thessalonica? Because in any church, whether it's a model church or not, there are those things that are going on within the church. And purity within the church and morality within the church and abstaining from evil has an effect on every single one of us in this church. If you are living for Christ, you're an asset to your brothers and sisters. If you are living and following after the evils of this world, you're not going to be probably much of an encouraging asset to one another. You're probably just getting by, just making it here to church, let alone being a tool that God might use. Philippians 4.8, Paul wrote this also. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, then meditate on these things. That's how we take a mindset that has been following after evil things and following after things that are impure. And Lord, help me to set my mind, and that's where the battle is, help me to set my mind on these things. Meditate on these things. Paul closes, and I'm going to close with this because we're over time and I'm not even going to comment, so just bear with me. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, underline that word, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Do you want some explanation on that one? Okay. You can just give each other a hug and whatever. I mean, culturally speaking, yeah, given the, but it was usually men to men and women to women. But anyway, greet the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Interesting that he puts that in there. This be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Amen. That's how he closes his letter. It's interesting. Paul opened this letter with grace in chapter 1, and he closes the letter with grace like he does in all of his letters. But this is what's interesting about what Paul understood about grace, and I hope you understand it the same way. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. How much grace did you need getting up today? How much grace will you need this afternoon from God to enable you to go forward in your walk, to be pleasing to Him in all that you do? We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.